Welcome back. I am Charles Musgrove, host of Business Matters. I'm with the Bean Team, and today we have Taylor Hodges back in the house. Taylor, say hello. Back in the house. Hello, everybody. All right. So Taylor is with Southern Capital, and we're going to have our second show where we talk about some of the investment vehicles. Uh, we're going to talk about the advantages, disadvantages, uh, try to keep this on a high level where it really provides good information. We're going to try to hit the highlights, uh, general information, great information that we can really uh, help us make decisions and kind of fine-tune the direction that we want to go. If you want to say, I have a tendency of going too down, too far down in the weeds, just come out and say it. Taylor is like the encyclopedia, <laughs> so he, will, uh, he can give you the detail yeah. if we need it. So if we want to ask those uh, technical questions, actually, if you have a technical question, if you want to learn more about this, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, look for Bean Team on YouTube. Uh, we'll have a lot of information in our show notes uh, that's that you can access. We'll put the notes of this show in there. And if you want to leave comments, please leave comments out there, and we'll respond to those. Either I'll get back to those or, or Taylor will answer those. So we will uh, get a response back to you. So if you've got detailed questions, uh, go to YouTube, leave the questions, and we'll we'll uh, get back to you on that. And this, again, is the pre-roll that we do that leads up to our show recording for Real Talk 93.3. That show is heard every Sunday at 11.30 a.m. out of Tallahassee, Florida. So go listen to that if you want to. We have all of our stuff out there on Apple Podcasts. Uh, so if you want to go just listen to the shows, those are available. Go watch the past shows. They're on YouTube, so you get the full audio visual effect there. So, Taylor, we're looking for some great information on show number two. You got to hit it with the uh, with the comment, like, subscribe. That's right. <laughs> subscribe it and like it. You'll love it. All right, so here's what we're going to talk about in this show. We're going to talk about non-ERISA plans. What's a safe harbor? What does it mean? We're going to talk about Roth IRA versus regular. You can also use a Roth and a 401k. What is a college savings plan? And rules for distribution or pulling their monies out of our retirement plans. So there are required rules for that. There are required uh, distributions out of our plans. So we're going to get a little bit technical on that, but it's information that we need to know. Government's going to get their taxes. How can we stop them? That's right. We can't stop them. We can defer it, and we can minimize it as much as possible. It's about tax deferment, reduction, but not avoidance. Yeah, you avoid it. That's how you get on the news. That's right. We don't want to be on the news. So that is it for the pre-roll. We're going to turn it to John, our producer. He's going to play some music. That will lead us right into our recorded show for the radio. So stay tuned. We got the knowledge Nuggets of knowledge coming to you today once more on Business Matters. Nuggets of knowledge. John, cue us up. Welcome to the Business Matters Talk Show with Charles Musgrove. On Business Matters, we discuss the issues that matter to your business. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and BeanTeam.com. And now here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Welcome back for another exciting show. I am Charles Musgrove with the Bean Team and your host of Business Matters. We try to help you run your business. We try to help you with those matters that affect your business and your personal life. Today, 
We've got Taylor Hodges back in the house from Southern Capital. Welcome back, Taylor. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I'm just here for the conversation. All right. We've got some more good information on how to manage our money, how to plan for retirement. What do some of those technical terms mean? What do some of the plan types mean? We're going to try to hit it today. We've got non-ERISA plans we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what is a safe harbor, Roth versus regular. What is a college savings plan? And then those rules on how to get our money out of our retirement plan. Mm-hmm. When do we have to get it out? Can we leave it in there forever? What's going to happen if we don't? What if? What happens if we try to get to that money too early? And if you think you thought you knew those rules prior to January 2020, you probably want to stay tuned because there was a uh, big tax overhaul called the 2019 Secure Act and tax and st- uh, tax extenders that just came out uh, effective January 1st, 2020, that changed a lot of the distributions, ages, and amounts. So stay tuned for that. So if you thought you had it figured out before <laughs> Christmas, you came back after Christmas, and lo and behold, the, the federal government has changed the rules again. So stay tuned, and you may learn more information about how, to, how that affects you. So Taylor, tell me, let's talk about a non-ERISA plan. So ERISA plan, those are your typical 401k plans, those are your IRAs, those are your simple, your SEP. Those ERISA plans allow you to, the business, to take a deduction for any contributions made to the plan. For the employee, that they, their contributions they make, they're deferring income until the future when they draw that out. So there's an immediate tax advantage for ERISA plans. Yeah, and ERISA plans are more of a, the way that I boil it down is if we talk about ERISA plans like 401ks, um, 403bs, any type of offer to all employees, the main thing ERISA is looking for is for it to be non-discriminatory. So we can't offer to a special group of employees. We can't offer a special plan only to owners or key employees. So That's what what Charles was saying is, you know, 401ks and those bigger plans that are offered to all employees are great to help us, again, attract, retain, reward good key or good employees. The non-ERISA plans are really where we can get a little bit more creative for the business owner themselves or business owners themselves or for those highly compensated or key employees that maybe, um, for instance, have a a new business development position or a sales position to where maybe we want them to be a little bit more incentivized and a percentage of their pay is based on what they bring in the door. So a lot of times what we'll do is structure a non-ERISA plan within the business. So the the money is actually not going out of the door to the employee. It's a sub account held within the business. And, you know, it can be called like non-qualified deferred compensation account. That's just a, a type of account. There's no really specific vehicle. But the, the key points there is think of it like a golden handcuff is what the term's actually called to where we have an agreement, the employee and the employer have an agreement that says we're going to pay you X amount of money at X future date if you stay with us for X amount of time. So as an example, if Joe stays with ABC uh, company for 10 years, Joe's going to get a $500,000 payout at 10 years. If Joe leaves at nine years and 283 days, Joe gets zero. And so that's what they call a golden handcuff plan or a cliff vest plan. So we're incentivizing Joe to stay. Good. So the so the non-ERISA plan, 
basically that is putting money aside. So that's that's kind of uh, sheltering money for a designated purpose in the future. So we have the ERISA plans. Those are for the benefit of the employees, and those rules are in place to make sure those are fair and balanced to those that are participating in the plan. With that, you get a deduction. You get some tax advantage today for an ERISA plan most most typically. So when we have a non-ERISA plan, is there a formal plan that is created or a document that is prepared? Generally, it's more of a, the best way to look at it for a non-ERISA plan is more of a, there is a plan document. Generally, it's done kind of behind the scenes. So there, there may be a legal document done between the business owner and only that employee. Uh, for instance, like a like an employment agreement. So maybe it's written into their employment agreement about this golden handcuff or this future payout they may receive based on the amount of work they've brought into the company. So if I'm comparing that plan document to a 401k plan, those are totally different. Those are the, the, there's more guidelines, there's more requirements, there's more, more structure rules to follow with exactly, ERISA. in the ERISA in the 401k or the SEP. So that you've got more of a it's more of compliance in nature. Yeah. If it's a non-ERISA, since they're since you're really not taking a tax deduction and the the rules are more uh, common law between or general legal in nature between the business and that person that you're trying to. Uh, provide that golden handcuff to mm-hmm. that's more of a contractual relationship correct and the key takeaway from that is if you do structure it that way because non-ERISA plans or these uh, executive compensation plans for key employees or key executives they can use any type or there's a number of different asset vehicles they can use it's just the concept of a, a non-ERISA kind of deferred compensation plan the key thing though is that the business does not get a deduction and the employee is not taxed on that money until it actually changes hands so it's the constructive receipt once it's paid out to that person in the future then the business gets the deduction and the employee is taxed on it but until that payout happens the it stays in the business's name and so it's in the business's accounts, it's in the business's name, and it's not paid out until that future period at which point the deduction and the taxes happen. All right, so let's, uh, let's put that in a practical example. So if, we, if we're using, we can use a, what we call a non-ERISA plan. If we have a, uh, an employee inside the business that mm-hmm. we want to transfer ownership to that person in the future. Mm-hmm. So we have created a, a contract or an arrangement between the company and that key employee mm-hmm. that says, okay, if you stay here and you want to buy the shares of the company, then we are going to set aside money over the next 10 years mm-hmm. that that money's designated purpose will be distributed to you in the form of compensation. Mm-hmm. And then you use that net money after taxes to purchase the shares of the business from us. That's correct. And you could even, you know, we have clients that take it one step further and maybe there is some type of death benefit owned on that retiring partner so that, you know, the company pays out the cash and it's either the person or the company buying the shares back from that retiring partner. If you keep and maintain that death benefit, chances are hopefully the company is going to be around longer than that retiring person. This is, you know, obviously not hoping this happens. When that person does decease or pass, then the company collects the death benefit if that is in place and recoups generally more than that was ever paid out to that retiring partner in the first place. So that is an example of a kind of a self-completing non-ERISA, non-qualified deferred comp plan. In that case, using a type of payout mixed with uh, like key person life insurance, that that is an example of that plan. Right. Those are those are examples, practical examples that we see frequently, and that's a way to 
really put into place ownership transition with uh, key employees that are inside the company that you're you're selling the company to someone you've already identified that's working in the company. Now, if you've got uh, a person outside the business, then not all of those things are available to use since right. you don't have a compensation methodology at that point. So, and and going down that path, there are some which we're not going to get into right now. There are some very unique. Uh, tax planning strategies that, you know, Charles and I have seen with a couple clients that, that, you know, we've seen in the past that have these type plans and type strategies structured that can make it very advantageous for everybody involved, uh, both the retiring partner and the person that's taking over ownership so that everybody is really getting what they want, the financial benefit, the ownership of the company, and moving forward, that the company is in a, a position to continue to be successful. Right. So you have the continuation of that business. So the, the, the highlights of that, you have the, the continuation of the business. You, you funded that in a way that it doesn't cripple the business. You've also funded that in a way that the, the exiting owners get a benefit, and it's affordable to the guy coming in. You maximize what the guy going out can get and making it affordable for the guy coming in. That's right. So that's a win, win, win all the way around. So now this is, uh, this is a, a more focused uh, topic right now is a safe harbor. I know we touched on a, when to use a safe harbor in the previous show. So tell us what, what does safe harbor mean? When do you use it? What plans do you use it in? So with a safe harbor, you can almost bring it back to what you deal with in your world of taxes. So, you know, for instance, at the end of the year, you want to what they call pay in safe, right? Pay 110%. Well, they also call that a safe harbor payment. And it's just kind of a way to get the government off your back. That's the same way that I look at a safe harbor inside a 401k for a business. It, if you do the safe harbor, safe harbor provision, it's essentially a way for you to get ERISA and the government off your back from you making, um, you making contributions. So, you know, in the last show, we talked about those top heavy rules, and that's really what a safe harbor helps us do. So if we elect, because they do not come standard, you actually have to elect the safe harbor provision. If you elect that safe harbor provision inside your plan, then what it does is it sets up matching components inside your plan. So whereas instead of just the business making contributions or just employees making contributions, the business is going to match um, in one way, shape, or form or another the contributions that the employees are making up to a certain point. So the most basic, uh, there's three really safe harbor matching options. Uh, the most basic one of the three is a 100% match on the first 3% and a 50% match on the next 2% of income. So if the employee puts in 3%, the business matches at 3%. And if you do that, if you elect that safe harbor revision, like we mentioned in the last show, it allows the key employees, so the owners and other key individuals, um, and I'll explain what a key employee, because that's very important as well, because that's how people can get caught, to put in as much as they want in the plan, regardless of what the non-key employees put into it, because we are avoiding that uh, top heavy testing so it doesn't matter what we put in we're completely okay we won't be top heavy tested we won't get in trouble by the, by the irs or ERISA. so the, the one of the other benefits of that is it's by not having to do the top heavy testing your administration cost is less your just your anxiety on making <laughs> sure that that you're not a top heavy plan is totally reduced if you're if you're a safe harbor plan so yep. It really allows you to, just like Charles said, it allows you to kind of take the worry out of your mind, which, you know, hopefully your your plan, uh, whoever's helping you with the plan or your advisor is helping you with this. So hopefully you're not worrying about it. But 
it should take the you know the worry out of the employer's mind because now they can run their business and they can max out their 401k without worrying about what the other employees are, are trying to do as well. Do you do the is the safe harbor only uh, in play for a 401k or do you see that in other plans as well? We normally only see it um, in 401k plans. You know that, that that doesn't mean it's not out there. Just I haven't seen it. Usually we see it in um, in four hundred one k plans. Okay, so before we go to the next topic, uh, Taylor has on the fly introduced another topic that we want to make sure that we address, and that is a key employee. So key employees are if you're not doing a safe harbor, that's an important distinction uh, in your four hundred one k plan. So define as simple as possible. What is a key employee? Yeah. So a key employee is, is really just three very distinct. It's, it's pretty black and white of what the IRS looks at, what they classify as a key employee. And the first one is, and these are not, and these are, or, so if you match either one, either one of these, then you will be considered a key employee or a highly compensated individual to a 401k plan. So that means you own 5% or more of the business. Number two is you own 1% or more of the business, but you make $150,000 or more. Number three is you're an officer of the business and you make $175,000 or more. So to go back over those, regardless of what your income is, number one is you own 5% or more of the business. Number two is you own 1% or more and so really one to 5% and you make $150,000 or more annually. And then number three is you don't have to own the business, but you're an officer of the business and you make 175 or more. Okay. So that, that makes you a, a key employee in the eyes of the ERISA. So even though you may designate when you're filling out your, your um, year-end uh, census information for your 401k, you may still have to identify the key employees. However, the key employees do not come into effect for a calculation of a top-heavy plan if you have elected safe harbor. That's correct. Yeah, that, that, that last piece is very, very important. <laughs> right. Very, very important, the safe harbor. So I like things simple. I like things to be easily compliant, non-complex. So I'm almost always going to recommend safe harbor. Now, yeah, that does not mean it's the, the best choice for you and your business, but uh, it is simpler. You Usually just kind of takes the headache off things, but that doesn't mean it's the best fit. Correct. Okay, so now, next on our topic list is, Taylor, tell us, what is a college savings plan? Well, I think you pretty much just summed it up. A college savings plan is a type of account or a vehicle, uh, think of like an IRA, right? So you go to your financial advisor or you go to a bank and you want to open a college savings plan. There's a couple different types of college savings plans. They have different features. Some work better for certain things. Others work better for others. But the most common one that a lot of people know of is a 529 plan. So to keep it simple, a college savings plan is basically another vehicle that you can defer income. Well, no. So a college savings plan, like a 529 plan, there's no deferral. So we actually don't get a deduction when the money goes in. Okay. We only don't pay. It's like a Roth IRA. So the money comes out tax-free if it's used for qualified expenses. And that was one thing in this the tax overall, the the 2019 Secure Act and Tax Extenders that just passed January 1st, they actually changed the rules um, for 529 plans, especially through that that kind of tax overhaul, and that they really opened the doors or increased what funds in a 529 plan can be used for and still get that tax benefit. So the way a 529 or college savings plan uh, account works is, let's say um, 
I want to put $10,000 away for my child. So this is after tax dollars. after tax dollars. Exactly right. It goes into that account. And then if it's used for those qualified expenses, we never pay a dollar in taxes on what it comes out. So tuition, books, um, room and board, the new uh, the ta- or the Secure Act and extenders, the new things that they've added to that is now we can actually pull money out of our 529 plans and we can apply it to private school. You so, know. so let's back up. So if you yeah. put if you put a dollar in and you take a dollar out, you're you're you haven't benefited. So if you put a dollar in and it grows to two dollars. Are you telling me I can take the total $2 out and there's no tax effect of that? If it's used for qualified expenses, you're right. exactly right. So that's that's why you use it is to allow those assets to grow, and then you use that the money that's in that plan for the designated purpose, and there's no tax there's no tax cost to you. That's that's exactly right, yeah. So we're, we're avoiding the capital gain side of things if it's used for those qualified expenses. Okay, so the, you would want to do this not the year before you plan to go to college or your kid to go to college, but something that you do over the long term and you want those assets to grow and you get the benefit of the asset growth. Exactly. And especially if we're in a situation where a lot of times what we see is grandparents wanting to put aside money for grandkids' college education. So opening a 529 plan for that child, and it's not only one person can contribute to it. You know, I can put in money, um, the child's grandparent, the child's aunt, whoever can put money into this 529 plan and everything that goes in is after tax, but we never pay taxes if it's used for qualified things. Now, the one rule that has recently changed with this in January 1st, 2020, that is a very, very uh, great thing to happen with with college savings plans, especially or at least 529s, is we can actually now use uh, the funds in our 529 plan for student loans and apprenticeships. So that is something new. You know, we're still learning about it, still really digging into what the IRS means by that, because generally the first thing that comes out is not what sticks. It's the language has to be broken down and scrutinized and examined. But that was on the initial release is that 529 plant, 529 plans funds can be used for student loans and apprenticeships as well. Uh, in the 2017 tax reform, they made those funds available to be used for private school. So it's not only college savings anymore. You know, you can use 529 funds to send your your child to private high school and and pay that tuition and still get that same tax benefit out of it. So we still get the same tax incentive if it's used for those education expenses. So the term college savings is really going to have to be reformed because they've made all these new doorways into it. That's good. So really what they're looking for is, did you set money aside? Did the assets grow? And then are you going to use that for an educational purpose? That's correct. So in general, if it's an educational purpose and there, I Typically, when these things go into go into effect, you don't see a tightening of what it's used for, but a broadening, as we've seen in this uh, 2019 Secure Act, is the uses of that money inside that plan are broad. They're broadening out, so you get a so it's a benefit to the to the taxpayer. That's correct. You're 100 percent right. So that that is awesome. Uh, that's really a way that you can set money aside. Is there a limitation on the amount of money that you can put into it? Generally, the rule of thumb that we use is up to the annual gift exclusion. So, you know, $15,000 per person to the account. So if it's a, it's a married couple, mom can give 15, dad can give 15, grandma could give 15, granddad can give 15. It's just up to that annual exclusion amount. And that's kind of how you don't have to do any more reporting outside of that. Right. So that, that is, uh, that's good. So if you're going to give, if the, if the grand grandparents or the parents are giving money to giving money to the kids or the grandkids, then they do it for 
$15,000 or less, that is a great way to put money aside that can be used for that general purpose of education in the future. That's right. Yeah. And and before you start a college, any type of college savings plan, you know, just do your homework because the ones that were popular and and kind of the go-to plans in the past may not be the best ones anymore. So do your homework. Just understand what plans are available because they all have different pros and cons about them. So just understand the the benefits and the for each plan. Good. One more thing before we leave that topic. Do, does the who controls how those assets are invested? So a 529 plan, it really depends on what company you go with. You know, for instance, um, American Funds has a very popular 529 plan called College America. And so they have specific mutual funds set aside for that College America fund. And we can choose, you know, whether we want to be aggressive, conservative, and things like that. But a lot of 529 plans have specific allocations set aside uh, built within that company that, that, that they're really built around. Okay. So if the 529, that's set up for a child, mm-hmm. typically at the time that's that's set up. So it's in the name of the child, but who controls the spending of that money out of the plan. Oh, so well, contributions and everything. It would it would be overseen by uh, the the guardian, basically the parent, the guardian, um, the that's looking out for the child. And when distributions start, when the child does, you know, well, I guess it's not college anymore, is it? Right. So whether it be high school or college, when distributions do start, usually it would be the guardian or the parent that takes distributions and and basically we have to report what they're used for that that's how the tax uh savings really comes out is we have to you know obviously save receipts show what was spent on it show the distributions and what was purchased for them um and then report those at tax time okay good those are uh, those are awesome plans so if you want to know more about those uh leave a comment on our youtube page uh or if you want to make other comments about our show check us out there so all right so now we're going to go to a little bit more uh could be technical so taylor we're going to turn this over to you don't don't kill us with the technical rules but give us the information we need to know so we have set money aside in our 401k our sep our ira we're getting near retirement so we we can't get it too early or there's a penalty so talk to us about the penalties in general associated with the different plan types and then what are the distribution requirements to stay compliant that we're pulling enough money out each year? Yeah, so the main thing that Charles is talking about here is we recently, and I've mentioned it a few times, probably beating a dead horse at this point, but that, but, but I say that because it is so it is so important to understand because the way that we've been doing planning around these retirement accounts and distributions and contributions has completely changed with this recent 2019 Secure Act. And a lot of what the changes were around were the distributions from retirement accounts. So this affects a lot of people that are either getting ready to retire and start taking distributions or if you've inherited a retirement account. There's even more changes if you've inherited a retirement account and you're not the spouse of the person that passed. So I'll start there. And again, I'm going to keep it very high level. If you have specific questions, ask Charles, um, ask, talk to your advisor. So the way that they work is if you're a non-spouse and you've inherited a IRA or 401k, 403b, any type of retirement account, in the past, there used to be um, what was called a lifetime stretch provision. So if um, if someone passed away that was not my spouse and I inherited that account from them, I could stretch out those distributions over over my lifetime rather than having to take any certain amount you know 
in any given year because anything that I take out of that account, I'm going to be taxed as income. So there's a lot of thinking and, and processing that has to go into that because just this inherited account could jump me up a whole tax bracket if I don't handle it right. So you could pull that out before you reach the minimum age for withdrawals? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And and so with the diff or the change in the plan was rather than the actual title is the elimination of the lifetime stretch provision. And so rather than having that provision where we could stretch out those distributions, because what Charles mentioned a minute ago is when we reach what's now 72, what used to be in as of, as early as 2019, 70 and a half, the government requires us to start taking money out of our tax deferred accounts. And the reason is because that's the only way they get paid. And the government's going to want to get paid. That's how the IRS collects their money. They don't get their tax unless we take money out of our retirement accounts, right? That's, that's the whole point of oh, deferring yeah. taxes. Right. And so the government makes us start taking money out now at age 72. So if someone passes and it goes to the next generation or a non-spouse, the government's not just going to let that money sit there. They want to get paid. So they make that person take money out. Even if they're not 70 years old or 72 years old, they still make that person take money out because that's how they get paid. That's so they, they want it earlier. They collect their taxes. And they have, they've realized that, okay, if that if that stretch provision or that skipping has occurred, yep. then I want it now because this guy was able to push it to the next generation. And here's what they did. So with the 2019 Secure Act, they eliminated that stretch provision, and now we have a 10-year cap to get every dollar out of that inherited IRA. So here's real numbers. I've got a client that just inherited a million-dollar IRA from her mother that passed. Well, that's a non-spouse. So that means rather than this 45-year-old client being able to stretch out a million dollars worth of distributions over their lifetime, now we have 10 years that we can take it. So not not accounting for anything with market increases or any type of interest or returns, we've got to take $100,000 a year additional, additional income. income. And that most likely is in her high wage earning years. Exactly. Now, the one thing they did, which maybe it's a good, maybe it's bad, is they've completely eliminated required minimum distributions during that 10 years. So, oh, they, so you can they, push it to the 10th year. They don't care when you take it. But now think about that. That means that this client, you know, back in this example, they could they could either take a million dollars at age 45, they could take $100,000 a year, or they could wait and see and take it all at 55. But what if the market's done well? Now we've got you know maybe 1.3, 1.4 right. that we've got to take all in one year. Not only does the market do well, but what are the tax rates going to be at the time I pull it out? You, gotta, you, so beat, that's me, the, you beat me to, beat me to my own point. That's, <laughs> that is the uh, the crystal ball when it comes to to our tax planning or our retirement planning is we know what the rates are today. We know what the tax rates are today relative to what they've been in the past. However, we're just guessing as to what they're going to be in the future yeah. when we retire. So if our retirement is 10, 20, or 30 years out, that who knows what the rates are going to be. Yeah, and, and let me make one comment on that because to summarize, I know we talked about a lot of different stuff, but summarize, basically we've got new required minimum distribution ages of 72 instead of 70 and a half, and that only affects people that's turn, I know this is going to be a little confusing, but this is the way they laid it out. If you turn age 70 and a half, after January 1st, 2020, then you fall under the new rules. If you were 70 and a half before January 1st, 2020, rules. you're still in the old rules. Right. So that's that's key number one, is that new requirement distribution ages. And then key number two is that 10-year cap of we can no longer do lifetime stretches. We only have 10 years to get all the money out. Taylor, you did a, that's a great job of keeping that 
high level and simple. I'm trying to, man. I'm, I'm trying not to dig too far down in the weeds there. That's good. So the the benefit there is if you get if you get a inherit or gifted a retirement plan, good for you. Now you don't have the stretch rules. You have to pay that out over the next 10 years. Yep. And it's any type of retirement plan, uh, IRA, 401k, 403b, et cetera. Number one takeaway from this is check your beneficiaries. They've changed since January 1st. Understand what happens because there are some there are some exemptions around that, but understand who your designated beneficiaries are. And if you have a trust, which many of our clients do, talk to your advisor because trust laws have changed with this, especially if you leave a retirement account as or a trust as a beneficiary to your retirement account. Very, very important that you make sure to check these things out. There you have it. More nuggets of knowledge brought to you today by Taylor Hodges, Southern Capital. Check it out. Thank you so much, Taylor. This has been an informative show, one that uh, everyone should listen to, rewatch. Uh, leave us comments on our YouTube page. Check it out. Look for other shows that we have out there. Information to help your business run better. I am Charles Musgrave with the Bean Team, host of Business Matters. You have been listening to Real Talk 93.3. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. And see you next week, same time, 1130 a.m. Peace. The Business Matters Talk Show with Charles Musgrove is sponsored by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting and tax preparation needs, visit beanteam.com or call 893-7710. You can listen to more episodes of Business Matters on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or visit beanteam.com.